Now with Bibles, and uh, you just wave to them. They'll put a Bible in your hand. And we want to always hear the Word of God, but we want to see the Word of God with our own eyes. You never want to trust anybody that teaches the Word, uh, so much so that you uh, aren't checking it out against a Bible on your lap. And if you don't own a Bible, please make that Bible uh, a gift from the Lord to you uh, tonight. Also, uh, tomorrow Vacation Bible School starts, uh, tomorrow morning, very exciting. Wow, what a week this is here at the fellowship. We're going to be setting up and decorating the entire fellowship tonight uh, at, uh, facility after the service. And uh, if you're able to help, uh, please go to the fellowship hall for your marching orders. And uh, marching orders will be awaiting you uh, there. Uh, chapter 7, Mark's Gospel. Then the Pharisees and the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. The Pharisees were, uh, not, it would be inaccurate to call them uh, the spiritual conservatives of their day. There's nothing wrong with being spiritually conservative or being biblical. They were the legalists of their day. Uh, they were the people who were, uh, made the very grave mistake of being so serious about the Word of God uh, that they embraced all of the demands of God's commandments but then decided to make them uh, more strict than God actually made them. And so they made, uh, they, they made uh, God's commandments and His demands even, even greater. And God doesn't need that kind of help. It always messes everything up as we're going to see here in a moment. And the scribes and the, and the Pharisees were of, uh, of that legalistic bent. Uh, the other great sect of Judaism, uh, the, the uh, Sadducees, are not mentioned here. But they come all the way from Jerusalem in the south they make their way all the way up to where Jesus is uh, in the northern part of Israel in the Galilee. And uh, we're going to see in a moment here that they don't come up because they've heard great things about Jesus and they want to give him a fair test and what is he teaching and what is he doing so that uh, we can give him a fair hearing concerning his claim to be uh, the Messiah. Uh, they're not coming, uh, traveling all that distance to be open-minded about Jesus. They're coming to find a fault. Now, when they uh, saw uh, some of Jesus' disciples eating bread with defiled, that is, with one, uh, unwashed hands, they found fault. Uh, we're going to see in a moment that this is a tradition that they're finding fault with. Uh, it is interesting to me that they can't find any fault in Jesus' life. And uh, we remember in another one of the Gospels, Jesus spoke candidly to the religious leaders of his day, and he said, which one of you convicts me of sin? Uh, and uh, and uh, there was a, a, a silence. Uh, no one will ever be able to break that silence when Jesus poses that question uh, to them. Uh, not in this life, not in the life to come, where a person rejects Jesus because of some poor example that they've seen in a Christian or uh, some uh, convoluted idea or whatever. Uh, to, uh, the, what we want to do is we're going to either accept or reject Christianity on the basis of his life. And uh, they could not break that silence. No one will ever be able to break that silence in eternity when Jesus would say, why, uh, you know, which of you convicts me of sin? It would be the same thing. Nobody can raise any justification. We'll never be able to for rejecting Jesus as a Jewish Messiah and as the Savior uh, of the world. So he broke uh, the silence for them by then declaring, then why uh, don't you believe the things that I say? And, uh, and so uh, they, they come here, they can't find a fault in Jesus, so they find a fault in, in the disciples. 
And oftentimes you'll see someone who's wanting to reject Christianity, can't find a fault in Jesus. We love him. We think he's great. Uh, but boy, those Christians, I mean, I, I can't stand them. Or uh, I, I've known a few of them that were hypocrites or less than perfect or whatever it might be. And so here they, uh, they uh, find a fault with the disciples that they're eating bread with undefiled hands. Now, or with, def- uh, with defiled or unwashed hands. The interesting thing about uh, this is that what the disciples are doing is they're not violating any commandment of God. They're violating a tradition, again, as we'll see in a moment, a tradition that the Jewish religious leaders had come up with on their own. It's not biblical. It's a tradition of man that's being imposed upon the Word of God. So they couldn't even find a fault in the disciples. It was biblically based. All they could attach to in, in, in coming in their fault-finding attitude was to find a violation of uh, their traditions. It is interesting, as you, as you look at verse 2 there, uh, now when they saw, and, uh, and then later the last three words of that verse, they found fault. Um, one of the first consciousnesses that any of us have is a brand new Christian is uh, what's wrong uh, all around us. What's wrong with the church that we attend? What's wrong with other Christians that we see? What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with uh, people? And, and uh, there is this, uh, this light goes on and all of a sudden we see right and wrong with a clarity that we've never ever seen before. But the first consciousness and the dominant consciousness, certainly in someone who is like a born Pharisee, is of everything wrong, and, and they become fault finders. And if you want to find fault, uh, you're, help yourself. It's an absolute smorgasbord in the world. You want to find fault in a church? You want to find fault in any person within a church? Help yourself. You're going to be able to do that. If you want to find fault, you're going to find fault, because there's only one person that's perfect in the whole world. I'm not condoning a casual attitude towards uh, being right and being holy and being obedient to the Word of God, but only Jesus is perfect, and, uh, and that's why the Bible and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes to testify of Him, the Bible testifies of Him, and there won't be any fault find, uh, found in Him. So somebody becomes a new Christian, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. And all you do is you just kind of pat them on the head, you change their diapers, and uh, you be patient with them until they will finally grow up to a place of spiritual maturity where they will then be able to look at that same situation, that same circumstance, that same need within a church, and realize that they are of absolutely no value to anyone in just their capacity to find fault. We can all find fault. But now when I become, it, it, it dawns on me and it comes with maturity to realize that, that that is no virtue in a Christian, but what is virtuous, what is helpful, is when someone is able to spot something that is wrong and then becomes a redemptive influence in that or comes alongside now to fix and to help this particular area, whether in a church or in a person's, individual person's life. And that's where somebody uh, begins to become mature. We, can all, we could all tear, and, and even just one local church, uh, we could all tear one another apart in this room. We could tear this church apart. We could, we could do it and, and be done with it in 48 hours. But what holds it together is that people uh, have grown into a maturity 
and uh, that, that looks and says, no, that's not maturity there, uh, but, but how to be redemptive and to be helpful in the situation. And sometimes you do see faults, and they do need to be addressed. They do need to be uh, spoken to, and, uh, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, but just finding fault is, is, uh, is, is a mark of, of a Pharisee or of a legalist or someone that doesn't get the bigger picture uh, of, of the Christian life. I, I do personally believe that, that um, uh, every single one of us, when we're born into the world and then when we become a Christian, I think we bring, uh, bring it with us. I think that uh, all, each of us has a, a bent in either a, a Pharisaical direction uh, that is a legalist, a fault-finding direction, or into the direction of a Sadducee. And the Sadducees were the, the religious liberals of their day, and what they would do, the, 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 the Pharisees would look at the Word of God and they'd take any command that God gave and they would make it more demanding than God made it. And what the Sadducees do is they come along and they explain away the demands of the Scripture. And so <clears throat> you've got... This Pharisee who comes to know the Lord by personality, and they have to learn that fault-finding isn't a virtue, but becoming uh, a part of the solution in terms of getting into maturity. And then you've got the, the, the Sadducee on the other side, who is often a very uh, compassionate person and uh, a very loving person in a lot of ways, and, uh, and they don't see a principle as clearly as a, uh, somebody from a Pharisaical bent might see it. And so what they have to be careful of is what Jesus addresses in a moment here, and that is to just explain away uh, the Scriptures and, uh, and, to, and, and, the, and the, the necessary demands of Scriptures. Um, if I was going to choose for myself personally, um, I very much would be, uh, have to be on guard of, of the, stricter, the stricter side of things for me. I don't, uh, I don't have a bone in my body or a cell in my body. Currently, I see it by the grace of God that is interested in any way in explaining away uh, the demands of, of the Word of God. The Word of God has made a miracle of my life. It has changed my life, the power of the Word. It, all it ever does is good in our lives as we know it and as, as we obey it. And uh, so, but I do have to watch uh, that, that tendency to maybe make it stricter than it actually uh, is, or just to notice everything that is wrong with everybody, uh, everybody else. But I know pastors who come from a, a greater tendency toward Sadduceeism, and they have to be careful not to become liberal, and, and they've got to work hard to stay uh, strict related to the, the demands of Scripture, and the demands of Scripture are always a, a good thing. So they come to find fault. If you come to find fault, you're going to find fault, and so they did. Uh, for the Pharisees, as it explains now what they found fault with, for the Pharisees and all of the Jews, they do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. And so you see the phrase, the tradition of the elders. They're not finding a biblical fault. Uh, the, the disciples are violating a, an added tradition that the Jewish uh, uh, religious leaders have added to the Word of God. And... Uh, and then he goes on to explain, Mark does, what this tradition was and where it came from. And uh, when they come, that is the, the Jews, when they come from the marketplace where they're bumping up against uh, all manner of riffraff and Gentiles and, 
and, and all. They come from the marketplace. They w- do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which uh, they have received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, uh, and, uh, and couches. And, uh, and so then the Pharisees and the scribes, they asked Jesus, why do your disciples not walk according to the elders, but they eat bread with unwashed uh, hands? So what they would do is they'd come in from the marketplace, they'd go to sit down for a meal, and uh, they would put their hands up like this, and somebody would pour water. They'd have their, uh, their hands cocked at their wrists. Water would be poured so it would fall off of their wrists, never going up their forearm. And, um, and then they would flip their hand over, and the water would be poured from the wrist down to the fingertips. And what it represented and, and how it started was the, the recognition among the Jewish people that they realized we are to be a separated people in the world. We're to be a holy people. We're to be a different people. We're not to be defiled by uh, the world. And, uh, and so they then established now, when we leave the marketplaces, when we leave the, the, the parts of uh, the in, uh, interaction uh, with the world, where you've got uh, the Gentiles and the defilement of the world, then before we eat, we're going to go through this tradition that the elders have come up with to remind ourselves that we are a separated and a holy people. The problem with with traditions that men uh, come up with is that what a tradition means uh, to one generation or to the group that establishes the tradition uh, is one thing. The first generation looks at it and they wash their hands and they're very clear on this. It's just a tradition. It's just a harmless reminder that we are a separated people. The problem is, is that the next generation doesn't view it that loosely. Now they view it as something that is now a mark of spirituality. And whether you do it or not is an indication of whether you take God seriously or not. But now we're making that determination on the basis of of tradition. And what happens with traditions is that very often they begin innocently. Very often, they're begun in order to remind us of very good things. But as it moves from one generation to the next generation, it takes on an entirely different meaning until what can happen is now it becomes a badge of spirituality. You're spiritual if you do it. You're not spiritual. uh, You're unspiritual if you don't don't do it. And then now it takes on this this kind of, of meaning and a judgmental attitude. And because I do it, I'm spiritually superior uh, to you. And because you don't do it, you are spiritually inferior to me. Not based upon the Word of God, but now based upon a tradition. And this is the danger of traditions. They almost always begin innocently. They're almost always intended to accomplish something uh, imp- uh, uh, something that's harmless but, but helpful, and then, then they become, uh, they become th- this other thing as, as, uh, as, as time 
uh, goes on. And so uh, the danger of this, and it's no wonder that Jesus, uh, you know, denounced it every single time, you know, he comes against these kind of traditions. And the problem that happens is exactly what happened with this tradition and so many traditions of the Jews is it took on a greater importance than even the Word of God to, uh, to the Jews. And so now whether we wash our hands or we don't wash our, our, our hands, that is now a characteristic of our denomination. That's what makes us different from the rest of the body of Christ. This is what is characteristic of my personal walk with the Lord. And, and it begins to divide on, on these issues. Again, not based upon the Word of God, but on, on the basis of, of these traditions. And I would say... Uh, you know, prior to the Jesus movement of the 1960s and 70s, this kind of thing was very much in full play. I mean, you had uh, whether women could wear makeup, whether they could wear pants, uh, not just at church, but at any time, uh, Christian women, uh, whether men uh, were compelled to come uh, to church in suits in a certain kind of... And these were all you would, you would be viewed as a spiritual person if you obeyed these traditions and unspiritual or less spiritual if you didn't. And the, these kind of things elevated any culture unless we're careful about them. And the problem is, is that if a, a tradition gets ingrained in this, in this uh, kind of a, uh, of a way, uh, then it becomes more important to us now in terms of defining spirituality than actually godly living and actually being Christ-like and uh, obeying the commandments of God. And that's exactly what happened uh, to the Jews in Judaism 2,000 years ago. And the same thing that uh, is true of, of most of Judaism uh, to this day, where the man-made traditions become more important than God's Word itself. It is interesting, if you go to Israel today and you talk with them related to the Word of God, the average uh, religious Jewish person elevates the traditions, the, uh, the, the Mishnah uh, elevates the interpretation of the elders of the Bible over the Bible itself. Uh, they elevate their traditions over the Word of God itself. Not just 2,000 years ago, but to this very day. Uh, that's the grip that this kind of thing can uh, get upon people. Uh, quotes from Jewish history, Rabbi Eliezer, he who expounds the Scripture in opposition to the tradition has no share in the world to come. It's pretty serious business. Uh, in the Jewish Mishnah itself records, it is a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict the Scriptures itself. And so this is the danger of this kind of thing, and no wonder why Jesus is going to be very, very strong uh, with it, as we're going to see in just a moment. And Jesus answered them, and he said to them, Well did Isaiah say, uh, uh, prophesy of you hypocrites. <laughs> That's right out of the chute. And, uh, uh, but, uh, but every moment that we spend consumed with traditions of men in Christianity and, and every moment that we spend in trying to obey those traditions is a moment that robs us of studying the Word of God 
and then obeying what the Word of God says. It's not a harmless thing. Uh, it, it, it flips everything on its head, and, and, it, and then it, it, you begin to major in the minors or in the nothings rather than, than majoring in the major, which is the Word of God. And so Jesus confronted them in their hypocrisy, and he says, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They came with, with, they come flattering him, but they had no intention of giving him a serious hearing as it relates to being the Messiah. And then he went on and said, in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines uh, the commandments of men, elevating uh, the, uh, the, uh, these doctrines and interpretations and traditions of men even above uh, the Word of God. And Jesus went on and said, for laying aside the commandment of God, nothing higher than that, but you lay it aside, uh, and as you do so, you hold the tradition of men, the elevation of traditions above what God's Word says, and the washing of pitchers and cups, and many other such things uh, you do. And so he, he rebukes them for the, the elevation of tradition above the Word of God. And the, but he's not done yet. And he said to them, all too well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and uh, he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. Those were commandments from, uh, from the law, the law of Moses. But you come along and say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have received uh, from me uh, is Corban, that is a gift to God, and then you no longer let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God uh, of no effect through your tradition, which you have handed down, and many such things uh, you uh, do. The law of Moses taught, and here, here is, uh, here's, the, here's the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. They pretended to be very, very zealous for the Word of God. Uh, but when they came across a passage that they didn't like, a commandment that they didn't like, they would massage it to find a way around it. And uh, when they found enough uh, people like them that didn't uh, like the demands of a particular commandment of God, uh, then they would accommodate them with some kind of a massaging of the clear demands of Scripture. And a classic example was the, this law of Corban, uh, where uh, Jewish people, and under the law of Moses, you were commanded to take care of your parents and to provide for them. So if they uh, had a crop go sideways or ran into some kind of a need, it was the obligation of the children to take care of the parents. It certainly included uh, the, when they, in their old age, where they had now spent their life raising the children, supporting them, taking good care of them, and now they come to their latter years and need that kind of support from, from their uh, family and from their children. Remember, no Social Security in those days, uh, no pensions, no IRAs, no nothing. Uh, your family was your Social Security, and it was your loan security in old age for the overwhelming uh, percentage uh, of people. And so here you come along and you're getting some number of uh, Jewish younger people and they want to find a way around this clear command of the law of Moses. And so the Jewish religious leaders came up with the law of Korban. And the law of Korban was this, where somebody could take all of their wealth and then dedicate it to God so that, hold on to it, 
just to dedicate it symbolically, but hold on to the complete control of it, so that when the parents would come and say, hey, I need to go to the doctor, I need to do this, you could look and say, I'd love to help you, but all of my money is dedicated to God. It's already spoken for. And it was just a cheap, ugly way of circumventing a clear command of the Word of God. And, and Jesus confronted them on that. And so we see the two dangers that we all face in our Christian life. It's not just pastors, not just leaders. All of us will in our decision-making and fashioning the Christian life that, that uh, we will have an experience. And that is that danger of legalism, of adding to the demands of Scripture, and then coming to uh, the, the Scriptures and, uh, and then looking at the ones that are inconvenient for us to keep or we don't want to keep and then find a way to explain it away. I would, I would say uh, my generation, <laughs> the greatest generation, <laughs> um, not really, but we're almost in terms of the body of Christ in this little segment of church history, we're like a hinge generation. Uh, because I think the generation, uh, like before me, uh, prior to the Jesus movement of the 60s and 70s, the, the, the great thing that people had to be alert to and watch to and weren't always successful in was, was this whole idea of elevating man-made ideas over the Word of God as marks of spirituality. But when I look at the generation that is behind me, I think that that generation faces the greater challenge here with the Corban uh, exhortation. And that is the tremendous, tremendous pressure uh, and, and an acceptance within a, a, a large part of the body of Christ today to feel very free to ignore any commandment in the Word of God that's inconvenient for me to keep and to explain it away and have a self-defined, self-determined Christianity. And both of them are a disaster, both extremes. And Jesus warns us here in this passage to steer clear uh, of, of all of, uh, all of this kind of, of stuff. It, 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 it ends up in a, a, a train wreck on both sides, and it, 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 is, it, is, it is to ultimately miss a, a relationship with God as God intends it and to miss what Christianity is, is intended to be. It's a very living and, and, and important warning. And then, then he, when he called all of the multitude to himself, so they confront him. It's a public confrontation. They're trying to embarrass him, and Jesus responds to them publicly, but he uses the opportunity to then call a multitude that has been gathered around now by the discussion. He calls them uh, to himself, and, and then he uh, uh, said to them, uh, the, uh, hear me, everyone, and understand. Here, he's going to explain it. There's nothing that enters a man from the outside. Not talking about the eye gate, not talking about the ear gate. He's talking about the, the food gate, the mouth gate. There's nothing, because that's what they're upset about, is, is eating with unwashed hands. So there's nothing that enters a man from outside which can defile him. We cannot be spiritually defiled by anything that we eat. It may not be good for us, may not be a lot of things uh, for us, but there is no spirituality based upon, uh, you know, what we eat. But the things which come out of him, uh, those are the things that defile 
uh, a man. And so Jesus instructs uh, the, the multitude, and, and he says, if anyone has ears, everybody does, but ears to hear, let him hear. Listen to what I'm saying. Otherwise, Christianity is going to be hijacked away from you. And I can't tell you how many people are caught in groups that identify as Christian that are, are, are completely camped in both of the extremes that Jesus is denouncing here, uh, a liberalism and a legalism. And so Jesus uh, tells them, tells us, that if you really want to please God, then make what comes out of your mouth the main issue in your life, not what goes into your mouth, not what you eat. Uh, that You're going to progress in spirituality uh, far better in that way. And when he had entered a house, and when he entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him concerning the parable that he had just told the crowd. And so he said to them, "Are you thus without understanding also? Do you not perceive that what whatever enters a man from outside, again food, cannot defile him, because it it doesn't enter into his heart. It doesn't impact his life on any." Uh, emotional, mental, or, or spiritual level. Uh, the food goes into his stomach, and, uh, and, and with great delicacy, he declares, it's eliminated, and, and thus purifying all foods. It's the process of all food that, that, that is eaten. It never, it never has a spiritual impact upon our lives. And, but he says, what comes out of a man, that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart, of men proceeds evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, uh, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, uh, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they uh, defile uh, a man. And so again, the, 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 uh, the true test of a person's spirituality is not what they put into their belly, not whether they keep man-made uh, traditions, but rather what is coming out of my life. And a person can keep all of the traditions of man that they want, and if that list that he gives there in, uh, in verses 21, 22, and 23 are pouring out of my life, that person is not a spiritual person. No matter how much they elevate the traditions that, that, that they are uh, keeping. The person, again, that Jesus says, who, who desires to please the Lord, don't be as concerned with what goes into your mouth or any tradition of man as much as with what comes out of your mouth and, and out of your uh, life. And imagine, here you've got these Pharisees and scribes coming to Jesus. They're trying to find fault in him. They come with this critical attitude uh, that they have. They give all this appearance of being so super spiritual that they keep the Word of God and then they keep traditions that they've come up with as well. And yet, these very men that are standing before Jesus and wanting to be influenced to that crowd, these very men as Jesus knew and as He denounced related uh, to them, they could let needy parents starve to death without any blinking at all. And Jesus calls them out on it. And he exposes them on it. And it's still a great lesson for us because we can come up with goofy ideas 
about what makes us spiritual and unspiritual, and we can judge other people in that way as well. What kind of a life am I living? What is coming out of my mouth? What kind of actions? What kind of words? What kind of deeds? These are the marks of uh, true marks of spirituality. And from there he arose and he went to the region of Tyre and Sidon. It's the only time that we have in record that Jesus left the actual uh, uh, territory or the, the, uh, the boundaries of Israel uh, and went into a foreign country. And, and here it is. He goes into the region of Tyre and Sidon. This is modern-day Lebanon for us. And uh, he entered into a house and wanted no one to know it. Now, isn't that interesting? He goes into a house, and he doesn't want anybody to know that he's there. And there's these little glimpses of Jesus that are found in the Scriptures. We know he loves people. We know he's healing them. He's raising them from the dead. He's cleansing the lepers. He's doing all of these great things. He's tired. He's tired. He's all God. He's all man, all at the same time, and he just needs a break. Why do you think he went to Tyre and Sidon? He goes out of the area of Israel because he figures that if he goes up into Tyre and Sidon into Gentile territory, that he might be able to get some rest. And it's a beautiful glimpse into the dynamic of, uh, of his life. And so he wanted to, to go in there, no one to know it, but he couldn't be hidden. And somehow the word gets out, at least to this woman, and a woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit. She's demon-possessed. She heard about him, and she came, and she fell down at his feet. I mean, this is the, these are the actions of a desperate person. Imagine um, having a child who is demon-possessed, Imagine the dynamic that it brings into to life uh, and the heartbreak that it brings in. Uh, Karen and I, we raised two daughters, and there was a period in their junior high days where I wanted to uh, send away for some holy water and just kind of spill it on them and see if, if it burnt uh, their skin. I mean, they, it was a little rough in, in those years, and they uh, pulled on around uh, out of it and all. But that's just uh, growing up. That's just uh, uh, the stuff that you deal with because they're descendants of Adam and Eve. It's another thing to have a child who's demon-possessed. She is absolutely desperate. She uh, falls down at at Jesus' feet. And the woman, she was a Greek. She's a Gentile, not a Jew, a a Syrophoenician by birth. And she kept asking him over and over again, uh, to cast the demon out of her daughter. And I mean, you can listen to the desperation. She's asking and asking and asking. I mean, of, of course it is what we would do. And Jesus said to her, but Jesus said to her, let the children be filled first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it uh, to the little uh, dogs. Now, it's one of the, you can almost look at it and go, I, that scratch that from the Bible. Jesus never said that, uh, and he wouldn't respond to a woman with a child who's demon-possessed in that way, but, it, but, he, but he did. And what he talks about here is he 
pulling a picture up in everybody's mind, in our mind as well, and, uh, in, in, that, w- that was familiar with the culture. And uh, you've got a family that's sitting around the dinner table, and Jesus is saying that it would be completely inappropriate for someone uh, to take the plate that is in front of a child and then uh, take it from the table, set it down before one of the household dogs or the puppies. When he talks about dogs there, uh, the little dogs in verse uh, 27, uh, the noun is diminutive, and, and Jesus isn't talking about these big wild dogs or packs of wild dogs. He's talking about puppies, domesticated uh, animals. And what, basically what Jesus is communicating to her is that he'd come into the world to provide salvation for all mankind, a Jew and Gentile alike, everyone. But before broadening his ministry beyond the Jews to uh, the Gentiles, which would occur under the direction of the Holy Spirit uh, in the, uh, through the apostles in the book of Acts, we have the record of it. His initial focus was to give the Jews the first opportunity to accept him uh, as the Messiah. And, and in the land of Israel, Jesus had freely ministered to the Gentiles who had uh, attended his meetings because it was on uh, Jew, uh, Jewish territory. But he do, he's careful here. He does not want to give the impression that he had come up to Tyre and Sidon because he was abandoning the Jews or that he was abandoning Israel uh, as a focus. And so if he started doing all of these great miracles in the the Gentile area, there was a real uh, possibility that this would be misunderstood by the Jews and and they would then conclude that he wasn't their uh, Messiah. And the Old Testament scriptures concerning the Messiah, they prophesied that the Messiah would have a concern for the Gentile world, but that his primary focus would initially would be upon the nation of Israel. And so Jesus has this exchange with her because he, is, he knows the big plan is unfolding, but at this point his ministry has very much a Jewish, a Jewish focus. And he's trying to keep the priority of the Old Testament scriptures and trying to uh, protect that. Her reply is, is, is interesting. I, you put yourself in her shoes in verse 27. I mean, here is Jesus. He's the answer to all of your problems and everything. And then he says something uh, like this. And uh, I think some of us would look and say, well, all right, I don't want to trouble you. I don't want to be a conflict or anything like that. I'll, I'll just go on my way. But she does not do that. She answered. Uh, she's got a nice conversation going now with Jesus. And she answered and she said to him, yes, Lord, but even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's uh, uh, crumbs. And, uh, and, and so she says, look, Lord, I, in essence, I'm not asking for a place at the table that you have prepared for the house of Israel. I'm just asking for a crumb that sometimes falls from that, that table and, and the deliverance of, of her daughter, she's saying it would amount to a, a, a mere crumb in comparison to the miracles that you have done 
in the land of Israel. The blessing that you have brought to the Jews in the land of Israel. Even if he did this for her, he would, he would still possess more than enough power to not only meet their needs, but to meet her need as well. So she's saying, I'll snap up any crumb uh, in, in the same way that, that any dog would do under a table. And we're all familiar, if, if, at least when we were growing up, to have a dog in the house at mealtime if you didn't train them carefully. I mean, uh, they, very often they appreciate the meal more than the kids. And what the kids pick about and sneak into a napkin to throw away later in their pocket, uh, or they shift around on the table to make it look like they got all, you put that plate down in front of a dog and you watch what a dog will do it. And she's just saying, I as a Gentile, I get what you're saying, but I will show an appreciation for a crumb that the nation of Israel, by and large, and certainly its Jewish religious leaders, are not showing you to the feast that you put in front of them every single day. And uh, this is quite a gal. I mean, she is really, really something. You're gonna, I wouldn't want to be in a debate with her uh, in, in any way. I'll take anything, Lord, anything that you'll, you'll give, uh, give. And then Jesus responded to her and said, for this saying, you go your way, for the demon has gone out of your daughter. And so he declares that at that moment, from a distance, he, he, the demon is cast out. And when she had come uh, to her house, she found the demon gone out and her daughter uh, lying on the bed. And uh, what a tremendous encouragement this, uh, this passage is, I think, to perseverance in prayer. She just would not uh, give up. And... Uh, and, and she continues to pray. She continues to intercede. And it, that is the kind of faith, the persistence that, that God notices and that, that he blesses. And then he, again, departing from the region of Tyre and, and Sidon, he came uh, through the midst of the region of Decapolis to the Sea of Galilee. So he comes back out of, of the area of Lebanon, comes back down into what is uh, northern Israel today, and as he does so, then they, these wonderful they's that are in the Bible, these friends of people in need, then they brought to him one who was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. So unable to hear and apparently able to make sounds with his mouth, but nothing uh, that could be used. He, has, he does not have uh, the ability uh, to use his mouth in a way uh, to uh, produce articulate speech. And, and so this is the condition that he has. And they begged him. Again, we just see the, the power and the strength of, and, uh, the, uh, of the words that are used for the attitudes of people that are coming to him. They begged him to just put his hand on Jesus, to put his hand on this man and with the idea that, uh, that, he would be, uh, that he would be healed. And so Jesus, and that's their idea. They come with them. Listen, we've seen you do this. We've heard about it at least. And we know all you got to do is just put your hand on someone. And this kind of thing is just readily taken care of. And so they, they've, they've given, um, they've uh, launched what they consider to be uh, their best suggestion for how he might take care of the situation. And uh, interestingly, Jesus uh, handles it in a completely different way. And he takes the man aside from the multitude 
Uh, I think about how often God, uh, right now this, it's, this is like, a, he's like a, a, a show in a circus. And uh, Jesus is going to take him out from being in front of, of all of this and, and how often he deals with the, the things in our life, uh, not publicly, but he deals with them privately, and I'm thankful for that. And he, he took him aside from the multitude, and then he put his fingers in his ears. It's an interesting sight in our mind, isn't it? I don't want anybody to put their fingers in my ears. And, uh, uh, but him, of course. And so, but here he is, it's just odd. He puts his fingers in the man's ears, and then he spat. And, and he touched the man's tongue. Now, there's a fair amount of discussion on whether he spat into his hand and then used the spittle to then touch the tongue or whether uh, he put his fingers in the ear, spat on the ground, and then touched his tongue. There's no absolute clarity on it. It's just a very, very uh, unusual. Jesus, it was something Jesus had never done before in, uh, in, in terms of this kind of a, a way of, of, of healing. And so then, looking up into heaven, uh, he sighed. And again, another glimpse at Jesus in his, in his humanity uh, and in his deity here, but mostly in his humanity that, that he sighs. You know, he, he wasn't a, a cyborg. He wasn't a machine. Uh, he was the Son of God entirely, but he was also fully man. And all of this, that everything that he was confronted with in his life and in his ministry, it impacted him emotionally and mentally in the same way that it would impact us. And I know we talked about this a couple of, of Sundays ago, but it speaks to the fact that I, I think as Jesus is sighing here, that he's certainly not sighing related to the man. He loves the man. He's going to heal the man. But he's, I believe that he is sighing as he realizes what, uh, what the world was intended to be uh, before Adam and Eve's fall and what uh, man was intended to be. And here he is day after day coming into contact with the consequences of the fall of Adam and Eve upon people's lives. And then here is this man, unable to, to hear, unable to speak articulately, and, 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 is, and, and he, 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 as he's confronted with it, it's close to him once again. He sighs, but he doesn't stop there. He said to the man, uh, Epaphratha, uh, that is, be opened. And immediately his ears uh, were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was uh, loosed. And so now he can hear, and now uh, his tongue is loosed, and he spoke plainly. Okay, stop right there between verse 35 and 36. Again, the emotion of the scene. Imagine, put yourself in this guy's place. I mean, he can now hear for the first time in his life. He can now speak for the first time in his life to be like other people in, in this regard. His, a miracle has occurred in his life. I mean, absolutely everything has changed uh, for him in, the, in his life, and it's changed uh, immediately, instantly in his life. So you read a passage like this, and you say, man, I... I'd like to know what that, that feels like. But, but I, I would contend that for every Christian, a greater miracle 
uh, has occurred in each and every one of our lives. When the Holy Spirit came into our lives and we were born again in an instant, and then we now had a capacity to live life, to hear, to speak, to receive, to process life that we had never had before. As wonderful as the, the miracle in this man's life is, every Christian has experienced an even greater miracle in which our lives were uh, transformed and changed instantly. I don't know what it was like for you when you became born again, but for me, all the blues became bluer, the greens became greener, everything changed for me. And, uh, and, uh, and uh, I'm sure that the same thing happened for you. I was, some people would talk about Talk about, they talk about somebody who, you know, gets saved and gets going with the Lord and you don't have to wonder, did that take hold or not? You know, we talk about someone being thoroughly saved. I was thoroughly saved. I mean, everything changed and it was and is still wonderful. And so then he commanded them that they should tell no one about the miracle, but uh, the more he commanded them, the more widely they proclaimed it. And, and we understand why they would do that, but they did simply make life harder for Jesus because now the crowds become even greater still and, uh, and there's a reason behind his commands, even commands like this. They would have done better to, to honor him in, in keeping it quiet. And uh, they were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. Uh, he makes both the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. It's, it's one of the, the great descriptions of Jesus that, that uh, and I love everything, uh, every description of Jesus in the Bible, but I love that phrase where here they are, they're watching him, they're watching his life and his ministry, and they say, he has done all things well. And uh, wouldn't you say the same thing about your own Christian life? I, I can't find a mistake. And what is everything he's ever done in my life, he's done well. And, and I know it's true of you. He who's begun a good work in us, he will finish it under the day of Jesus Christ. And it's a good work that he's doing within our lives. And I like... Um, and one of the, the, that description of Jesus is also, um, it has also impacted me in my service uh, to, to the Lord. And, uh, and, and I, I look at him, and if that was something that, a remark that people made concerning him, then, then I want it to be true of me who is trying to represent him and what he's called me to do. And that is, to the best of my ability, with the severe limitations of my ability and, and who I am, I want everything, for instance, of what is under my oversight and control for some short period of time, or oversight is probably the better way to put it, and, and that is the, having, pastoring a local church in the city of Modesto, that the standard that we would have for what we do provide in terms of ministry and service, that we would do all things well. And it's a wonderful, wonderful standard. We'll never be disappointed. Never to give God uh, 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 50% or 30% or give him 80%, but, but to give, 
Give him everything in, 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 in what we do. And it's the only way to properly, uh, properly represent, to, uh, represent him. I think that one of the things that's uh, interesting to me, and, and we'll close with this particular section here uh, tonight, is when God heals this man in such an unorthodox manner, I think the reason he does it in such an unorthodox manner is so that people will not, including us, will not put him in a box. So they come to him and they're telling him, just do the lay on your hand bit. I mean, they've got Jesus down to a formula now in terms of healing. And Jesus like busts out of that box in such a massive way by taking the man aside, putting his fingers in his ears, spitting and then touching his tongue. And it's almost like Jesus is just declaring in, in all of this, don't put me in a box in, in any area of, of what I'm doing or who I am or what I am or how I do uh, what I do. And I, I think the passage is intended to remind us of a very, very important lesson because I think there is such a tendency on the part of many of us and maybe most of us to reduce everything in Christianity down to a formula. And, and, uh, and, and it seems as if Jesus did these healings so differently in different places in, in, in different circumstances in order to prevent us ever being able to put even this one area of his ministry under some kind of a formula. And, and, and the key to anything in terms of Jesus' healing ministry and how Jesus does things and what Jesus wants to do even to this day through our lives in a given situation. The key in any of that is to seek the Lord in prayer and then to do what the Holy Spirit tells us. And I'm convinced that we crave formulas and it's an indication of spiritual laziness if, if I do that. Because I don't want to go through the hard work of prayer. I don't want to go through the hard work of intercession and drawing close to God and understanding the mind of the Lord and what I'm supposed to do in this situation. It is far easier to try and go to the Scriptures and come up with some kind of a formula and I just do this formula that doesn't require me to pray and it doesn't require me to learn how to hear the Holy Spirit in my life and then to obey Him in the situation. And the problem with reducing God to a formula, and I think the reason that God uh, fights against it, Jesus fought so uh, strongly against it, is that if we reduce any area of the Christian life down to a formula at the expense of prayer and the, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit, then ultimately we will end up with a relationship with a formula rather than a relationship with God. And, and it is a temptation for us, a great temptation for us, to have everything buttoned up nice and easy, turn to here in this situation. This is what you always do, and we reduce it down in that way. But if we do that, because our tendency is if the formula works, there's no need to seek God. There's no need to draw near uh, to Him and, and to pray to Him and seek His mind in this situation. 
Well, I'll say only that it would be a tendency in my life, but I think it would be in your life as well. And so he constantly breaks out of these kind of formulaic things that we come related to the Lord in order that we will uh, manage and move forward in our Christian life and impact people through our Christian life based upon prayer and based upon uh, seeking God and learning uh, what is the mind of the Lord and the leading of the Holy Spirit in this situation and then doing that. And the formula never deepens our relationship with the Lord. And prayer and the seeking of the Lord and, and uh, the mind of the Holy Spirit in any situation always takes us deeper into the relationship. And Christianity is, after all, a relationship with God uh, through His Son. And so the wisdom of Jesus is he, he not only does the great things that he does, and as we've seen tonight in this chapter, but how he does them is even a lesson to us. Let's stand together now and we'll pray and we'll ask the worship team to close us in a, in a final song. Jesus, we marvel at you and we marvel at the revelation of you by the Holy Spirit in your word and your wisdom, your power, your courage, uh, your strength, your unwillingness to allow uh, religion to hijack uh, uh, Judaism or Christianity, Lord. And, and we just love every glimpse that, you have, that we have of you in the scriptures and we thank you lord for this uh, this tonight and we realize that even as we read these thing about things about you they're so precious to us we want to milk every single incident to to its fullest lord in terms of of learning from it and and and, uh, and, and seeing you in it but with the realization even that now it's through a glass darkly and one day all of this is going to give way to face to face. And we can't wait for that, Lord. We pray that you keep us watching, waiting, doing all things well in our Christian life, being thoroughly saved, so to speak, in and, and this week that is out in front of us. We pray that you would make us quick to pray about the situations that we're in and then quick, Lord, to seek you for the leading and the guidance of your Holy Spirit in those situations. We pray that you answer our prayers, Lord. We pray that you would show yourself strong on our behalf and all that awaits us in this coming week. We thank you for your love that we are never separated from and all of your love and attention and discipleship and all of your glory that you're going to pour out upon our lives in this coming week. And we thank you, Lord, and we pray these things in your name. In Jesus' name, amen. If you stand here, now standing here tonight, and you are not yet a Christian, you have never trusted in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. 